Welcome back to Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. In this episode, we're gonna tackle the review process. What exactly happens after you press submit on your application? We will get into the nuts and bolts, the ins and outs, and the nitty gritty in this discussion. And we are thrilled to be joined by Christina Gapison tortle Assistant Dean for Admissions and Student Financial Services at UC Irvine. Christina, why don't you take a moment to tell us about your amazing career in admissions? Oh, you two are too kind. I appreciate you inviting me to join you today. My admissions career spans 20 years at two private institutions and two public ones. It started at my alma mater, Chapman Law, when I was hired as a seasonal waiting for bar results. After Chapman, I went to UC Davis. Then I went to Northwestern, where our paths crossed at the DC Laws event. I believe that was our first collab. In 2019, (laughs) I went back to California and the UC system to become UCI Law's second Assistant Dean of Admissions and Student Financial Services. In calendar years, I just celebrated my third anniversary here. I don't know how we account for that in COVID pandemic years. Do we double that? Or maybe it's like dog years. It's time seven. It oh, certainly boy. feels like I've gone great in this job. That's for sure. So Christina, as you may know, we begin each episode of this podcast with a game. It's usually fun. I want to say trust us, although Christy has thought up a tough one for this time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's usually not too hard. Um, full disclosure. This is a game I made up inspired by building playlists for summer road trips all summer. Ah, I'm not a music person. (laughs) I'm a little terrified. Well, we're going (laughs) to... Let's see how it goes. (laughs) We will see how it goes. So we will each name something related to the law school application process. The other two participants will attempt to come up with a song that has a title or lyrics that utilize the word or phrase or a song that epitomizes the spirit of that piece of the application process. I will go first. I'll be very kind. I'll give you a layup. The category is accepting an offer of admission at your dream school. And I will start with my song. My song is Happy by Pharrell. Picture yourself dancing on the rooftops because you're so excited. You got into your dream school and you accepted the offer of admission and your dream school is happy to have you. All right. I love it. All right, Christina, you go next. Okay, my song is John Legend's All of Me. Give your all to me, I'll give my all to you. You're my end and my beginning, even (laughs) when I'm winning. I love it. That is a great one. All right, so I'm last and probably least, and I'm going with a classic from the Beatles, which I listened to with my parents growing up in the backseat of the car. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Day, sunshine. sunshine. <laughs> okay, I love that one. It's just such a happy vibe, which is the way you should feel when you accept that offer at your dream school. All right, Christina, second round is to you. Oh, boy. Um, how about since we're at the start of a new cycle, how about that period of time between applicant submission to decision? So I know that you normally don't have the person start, but I'm thinking Ellie Golding, anything could happen. I love it. Anything could happen. Anything could happen. That's exactly right. All right, Christy, which one for you? Okay, so what came to mind immediately was Tom Petty. The waiting is the hardest part. (laughs) It's it's the hardest part. (laughs) Okay, I love the waiting period. So I'm going with my high school phase. Um, Bon Jovi's classic song, Living on a Prayer, which I think everyone is in that waiting period. All right. So finally, I can't help myself. We're moving to rejection. There should be lots of great songs on this topic. Who's going first? Okay. 
I'll go first. So all the students at HLS know that I am a big Swifty, a big Taylor Swift fan. So I'm going to do a Taylor trio for the rejection category. Okay. For the feeling of being rejected as an applicant, I'm going with Haunted from the Speak Now deluxe edition album, (laughs) which has the lyrics, come on, come on, don't leave me like this. I thought I had you figured out. Something's gone terribly wrong. You're all I wanted. Don't call the admissions office. (laughs) For the feeling of sending, so this is flipping the script, for the feeling of sending rejection deny letters as an admissions dean, I'm going with, I did something bad from the Reputation album, which sounds really cruel, but it's a good feeling. Again, the lyrics are, I did something bad, then why does it feel so good? And it does feel good. It does feel good. Because you know you are allowing all of these applicants to move on with offers at other great schools and move on with their decision for the fall. I'm getting a thank you next vibe by Ariana Grande. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, for that feeling when there's an admitted student who turns down your offer of admission and it was someone you suspected would do so all along, even back in the beginning, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. So shame on me. Now I'm lying on the cold, hard ground. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> All right, Christina, that's very hard to beat, but you can try. It is. And I realize I will never be Christie's backup singer because I just can't. <laughs> but I'm torn between two songs myself. They're both by Cher. Um, one, if I could turn back time. <laughs> Oh, mm, I love exactly. it. That's a good song. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then kind of a little bit melancholy, but still hip. Do you believe in life after love? <laughs> you can always go to share when you need a little, a little. You really can. Okay. Really- so Christy did three. Christina did two. I'm just going to do one. So this is probably my all time favorite singer. I gave birth listening to his music. So I had to push <gasps> this one into the lineup. Bob Marley. I searched hard for a Bob Marley song that would fit for this topic. And I went with No Woman, No Cry because it has the line, little darling, shed no tears. And the bridge is, everything is going to be all right because it's going to be all right. You're going to get into some great schools. It's going to be okay. You're still going to be a lawyer, even though you got that rejection notice. And I, I just love Bob Marley. I think this turned out fun. This was super fun. I was skeptical, but it was this was a good one, Christy. I got to give it to you. <laughs> now for our discussion, the review process. It's a mystery to so many applicants and advisors, the enigma that has spawned a million think pieces and anxious wonderings on the internet. Let's get into it. What goes on behind the scenes from the moment an application is received to the moment the office sends out a decision? So it may be stating the obvious, but let's begin at the beginning. What exactly happens after someone submits that application? Christina, you do the honors. I think the most important thing to know is that your application does not magically show up in the reader's hands the moment you press submit. It's actually a pretty manual process. Each school must download your file into one of two platforms, ACES or UNITE, which the Law School Admissions Council utilizes to provide member schools with their applications. 
As a quick side note, LSAC, the Law School Admission Council, used a platform called ACES for a long time, but schools are now transitioning to a new platform known as Unite. LSAC is transitioning schools on a rolling basis in the next year or so. Probably neither here nor there for applicants, but just something to know that's you know happening out in the ether. In any event, whether it's through Unite or ACES, LSAC provides the school with all of the components of the application that the applicant submitted their form, resume, personal statement, addenda, cast report, letters of recommendation, etc. And just to interject very briefly, this doesn't happen automatically. So this cast report piece may not even run until the next business day after the application itself is submitted. Exactly. Once it's all available, each school has professionals that go through all of those materials to ensure that everything is in order. That team of administrative professionals will go through each component of the file to quality check. For example, sometimes only one letter of recommendation may be in so far. If a school requires two, the staff who process applications at that school will likely not process your file or will mark it as incomplete, which means it will not go to the readers until that second letter is in. And just to be clear, when I said quality check, it is an administrative function. The staff are not proofreading your statement. Absolutely. I'd love to drill down on just what it means for that file to be handed off to the readers. Some offices, if you can believe it, still use physical paper files, which I think is so easy to picture when you're an applicant. A file folder with all your submitted materials inside that is kind of the folder is physically handed off from one colleague to another. My colleague Cindy has processed applications in the JD admissions office for over 35 years. And she says that a few decades ago, she used to spend all day, every day, opening the mail, sorting transcripts and letters of recommendation, and placing them into various file folders. And it's kind of amazing to look back and think just how long it must have taken for a file to go complete and ready for review back then. Yeah, we still have some of those legacy file folders, which were specially printed to have like a checkbox on the front so that different components could be checked off as they came in. And now those are just sort of I guess, souvenirs of a, of a past age in admissions. And now it can really take just a day or two. So if the CAS report and all the materials are there, they sort of automatically flow uh, into the system in which that we use for reading. And then they get checked and sent off to the readers. All right. So now the file is all set and ready for a reader, whether it's a person reading on a computer, on an iPad, or a physical paper file. Let's talk about that very first read. Who circulates files in your office? When do you circulate files? Is it a set day of the week or just when there's a certain number ready or every day? And how do you decide which reader gets which file? Okay, so let me go first. So for uh, Yale Law School, every reader is sort of responsible for grabbing files from the electronic bins uh, where they live and wait until once they're ready for review and moving them into what we call our reading queues. So this is all sort of approximate paper. It sort of looks like it online, like there's these little bins in a queue, but it's it's all just electronic folders. So I first read about 60 to 70% of the files that we get, and then my team splits the rest. Personally, I find it really overwhelming to have more than 20 to 25 files in my queue at any one time. So I grab uh, anywhere from five to 25 files, depending on how much time I have at that moment. If it's a day I have fully set aside to read, I might take 25, try to get through them before lunch. 
and then feel amazing to sit at lunch with a zero cue. Um, if I have an hour, I might grab five, you know, drink a cup of coffee and get through those. But I try to really take only as much as I can get through in a sitting. There's something that feels very weighty to me about having files sitting in my queue, and I hate that feeling. So I really, really just like to drive it down to zero. I also have a report sitting on the home screen of our reader application that tells me how many files need to be processed, how many are available to read, how many each person on my team has read in the last day, week, month. And that really allows me to keep track of where we are, spot any bottlenecks in the process and follow up with people as I need it. All right, Christina, what do you guys do? My director of admissions though circulates files to the first readers, approximately 100 to each of them on a weekly basis, but that volume can adjust based on the timing of the cycle, just like you said. Everyone gets theirs on Thursdays with the expectation they get them read by the following Wednesday night. Files are randomly distributed amongst the file reviewers. Christina, our processes sound very similar. So I'll describe the Harvard Law School process, how it almost always works, though, of course, there's times in the cycle when we have to adjust for reading volume and the like. So uh, my teammate in charge of the selection process assigns first reads on Thursday mornings, and we have a full week to read our queue of, of first reads. So the next Thursday, we get the next batch and so on and so forth. Files are randomized in our office. So the goal is for each reader to see a randomized representative slice of the pool over the course of the cycle. At our highest points in the cycle, each reader is expected to move through about 100 to 120 first reads per week. So for first reads, HLS admissions officers are reading alone. And thanks to Slate, the online software system we described, you can read any time of day and really anywhere that people won't be looking at your screen. <laughs> I like to read really early in the morning with a cup of coffee before anyone else gets up in my house. My goal is to start every day during the winter by reading at least five files. It grounds my day in the applicants, which is the center of everything we do in our offices. Okay, so now a file has been read for the first time. What happens next? All right, Christina, you go first this time. So I just had a flashback to Schoolhouse Rock, How a Bill Becomes a Law. <laughs> that is a little bit what this is like. It's a music episode. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, back to your question. Um, so my director and I split the files recommended for admission to keep them moving along to the admissions committee. We fully review those files again. We also review files recommended for waitlist and deny and can override the recommendation of the first reviewer. The admissions committee will often set some files aside for a full discussion. We are fortunate to have faculty, some other senior administrators, and one third-year law student serve on ADCOM to read files and make their own recommendations. At Harvard Law School, in terms of what happens next, it's all sorts of things, but typically the file heads to the next reader, to the second reader. So we recirculate files randomly, other than obviously you don't you don't second read the files that you first read. And when files get their second read, we, we read together in a room in a small group. So that's very different than the first reads, which, as I mentioned, are, are solo quiet time reads. I personally really like reading in groups. It allows us to talk through the files with teammates and then gain one another's perspectives as you read. And as much as we often agree, we often don't agree. And I find that my colleagues sometimes have very different reactions than I do to a file, which is instructive, or sometimes the very same reaction, which is affirming. The second reader is responsible for setting the file on its next path. Is this one headed to interview consideration, to deny committee, or should we hold on the file and see how the pool develops a bit more? So it sounds like it's similar. So after that first read, there's like a fork in the road for the file or for the applicant. And it, 
Same thing for us, although it's a little bit of a different fork. So the file can go straight to the faculty review process, which means it can either be read most commonly by a group of three faculty members who read independently of each other, or more rarely only by the faculty chair. Um, or it can go straight to deny at that point, or it can go to an intermediate discuss stage. Uh, we often send files to discuss when we want to talk about them as a team. This tends to be files that are challenging for decision-making purposes for one reason or another. Either they're right on the cusp of going to faculty review or not, or there's something unusual about them. For example, a really strong file with a tough character and fitness issue we want to chat about, uh, or you know something else that makes it more complex to decide. We meet weekly as a group uh, to discuss these, what we call discuss files, and there's a discuss bin that they get, they get put into. And it's a really good way to make sure that we're keeping ourselves calibrated with each other. And as Christy said, sometimes we really agree with each other, and sometimes it's really instructive to hear how people disagree and have different opinions on the file. And so I really value our discuss meetings. Uh, it's, it's a good way to have the whole office weigh in on really important issues about our applicant pool. So that's a bit about the early life cycle of a file. Let's dig into the process of reviewing an individual file. Christina, what do you look at first when you review a file? Are there rules in your office or set guidance regarding the order in which you read each component of an application? The only rules are that the reviewer's notes must end by addressing character and fitness. Basically, they have to write in either affirmative response to character fitness question one or two or no character and fitness issues present. It also must include notes on YUCI. And finally, their recommendation, admit, deny, or waitlist. If it's waitlist, which way do they lean? Lean to deny or lean to admit? We're looking for evidence of two things, and this is what the note taking um, encompasses. One, can the applicant do the work and what evidence is there of that? And two, do we want them here as part of the UCI law community? A faculty member once told me, what I want is grit and sunshine. And so that's what we're looking for in a file outside of uh, their ability to do the work. While each member of our team does read a little differently, I start with a quick look at the metrics or characteristics and easy application questions. The yes, no, choose from the drop down, or short response before diving into the applicant's longer essay responses. I review the resume last before turning to the items in their cast report. Okay, so for YLS, um, anyone who knows YLS will know that you know, we let people do it their own way. Uh, so there aren't rules or expectations regarding the order in which each component is read. Some people like to start with the letters of recommendation, others with the resume. I just read front to back. I find that it's the quickest and most streamlined way for me to do it. So I start with the application form, then I go into the essays and then the resume and then the cast report and then end with the letters of recommendation. That's the way the file populates into my system. And I've gotten used to reading in that order. And so that's just how I've, how I've learned to do it. If I could design it differently, I may, but I've just gotten used to it this way and it sort of has worked for me. I think it's so interesting how processes differ from school to school and then sometimes even reader to reader at the same school. Yes. Yes. And sometimes for weird reasons too. I know. Like, when I thought about this, I thought, is this the way I would have chosen? And the answer is maybe not, but now I'm so used to it. It's hard to imagine it any other way. So at HLS, there's no rules or set expectations for the order in which we read application components. I usually start with the resume, and I think most of my teammates do as well. Our only rule is that you have to read all aspects of the file in their entirety, including the components applicants don't think about, like the application form and the CAS report, which uh, can actually play a big role in your understanding of a file. 
All right, so this is a perfect transition to a quick dive into the LSAC generated aspects of your application or LSAC generated aspects of your application. I know Christy and I have a tomato tomato thing with LSAC or LSAC. So as an applicant, you know what certain components of your application look like. Your resume looks like the resume you submitted. Your essay looks like the essay that you submitted. But there are two components that may feel a little bit more opaque for applicants. That's the CAS report and the recommendation letter cover sheet. Um, and I had never seen those before myself before starting in this job. So let's start with probably the more significantly more important one, which is the CAS report itself. All right. So the CAS report, Credential Assembly Service Report, is a one-page standardized report generated by LSAC and included in your file. It lists all the institutions of higher education that an applicant has attended, along with a background section listing the candidate's high-level biographical data, just you know, birth date, permanent residence, and a degree school section with standardized data about the institution that the applicant graduated from. An LSAT data score summary setting out the applicant's test administration dates and scores and uh, what is called a transcript analysis section mapping out the applicant's cumulative GPA and credit hours by year attended at each school. So, Christina, I'm wondering what you find most helpful on the CAS report. And I'm also wondering if it's the same things I find most helpful on the CAS report. So far from this podcast, I think we are um, <laughs> fairly <laughs> well. <laughs> So I usually take time to review the degree school section, which provides information about the academic profile of the school the applicant received their undergraduate degree from. For me, this section provides two very helpful data points. First, it sets out what percentage of students from the applicant's undergraduate institution received an LSAT score in various percentiles, 95 and up, 90 to 94, 85 to 89, you get the picture. This is one way to get a sense of how strong the law school applicant pool is from that school. Second, it sets out the distribution of GPAs at the applicant's undergraduate institution. The percentage that receives a GPA of 4.0 and up, 3.80 to 399, 360 to 379, etc. This is a helpful way to contextualize <laughs> the strength of an applicant's GPA and is a measure of grade inflation at that institution. Notably, this data point is based on when the applicant attended their undergraduate institution. So if the grade distribution has changed over time, as it often does, this distribution changes as well. I am sure that all of you will be absolutely shocked to learn that grade inflation has been on the rise over time. Christina, I bet you really have observed that firsthand over your career in admissions. Oh, yes. It's been notable across almost every undergraduate institution. Sometimes we'll get applicants who graduated quite some time ago, and you, you'll you see the stark difference in where someone's GPA sits versus where that same GPA would sit if they got it today. It's actually very, very notable. All right. So as you suspected, Christina, I totally agree with you that those are two of the most helpful data points on the report. There are a couple of other things I try to glance at, so I'm just going to mention them very briefly. So there is this transcript analysis section where you can see quickly and easily if the applicant attended multiple institutions, what their GPA was at each institution as well as cumulatively, and you can see what the percentile rank is of their GPA at their college. So does that GPA place them in the top 10% of the law school applicants from their undergraduate institution or whatever the percentile ranking might be? And, and just to point out that this, again, is based on when the applicant attended their undergraduate institution. So you're comparing apples to apples. You're comparing them exactly. against their last year. Exactly. 
So I also like to look at the number of credit hours the applicant took each year. It's helpful to see if there's a year where the number of credit hours was particularly high or low. Were they overloading? Were they underloading? And this is also the place to see the LSAT score history in its entirety. What were all the scores on the LSAT, as well as any absences or cancellations? Finally, I also like to note whether the applicant ever applied to YLS before. So there's a little spot on the CAS report that says if they're a re-applicant. It will only say if they applied, so if they applied three times before, it'll only say that they applied once, sort of interestingly. And that gives me a chance to peek at the prior application if I choose to do so. Some schools also use something called an admissions index, which is a formula that combines LSAT and undergraduate GPA into a single number. For those schools that do use an admissions index, it would appear on the CAS report as well. Neither HLS nor YLS uses an index. Christina, I'm curious if you have any experience with these admissions indexes, or maybe you want to share a bit about how those are used by admissions officers? Sure. I didn't start to read files until I began working at UC Davis, and there I was initially tasked with reading files within a certain range of the index. But at Northwestern and UCI, we don't use it at all. I know some of our colleagues use it as a sorting tool when distributing files to various readers or when they should read them like in a particular order, depending on the cycle. Yeah, so that's different than all three of our schools in terms of uh, reading assignments. Okay, so that's the CAS report. And just a very brief note on the recommendation letter cover page. So these are also generated by LSAC, and they mostly just contain standard boilerplate language describing the purpose of the letter of recommendation and instructions for the recommender. But there are two aspects of the rec letter cover page that are not boilerplate. The first, obviously, is the name of the recommender, along with some... Hello there, Captain Audience. <laughs> ...contact information. <laughs> um, so that's kind of in the bottom quarter of the cover page. I only glance at that if I even really look at it, honestly. Um, do you? I thought you read every single like, are you just kind of, like... of the application <laughs> cover to cover, Christy. Well, you kind of just like your brain just absorbs. You like see yes, a name. Absorbs. You don't unless it's maybe someone you knew. You, yes, someone you just kind of passes right. you by. Um, right. Unless it's Taylor Swift, in which case you pay oh my very goodness. careful attention. I can't. <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. <laughs> Um, and then perhaps the most interesting item on the rec letter cover page is what's called the letter description, which p- appears about halfway down. Applicants, you may barely remember that you entered a, quote, letter description when you set up your rec letters, but you did. Yeah, so mostly those are super generic. It will say something like academic LOR or professional LOR hyphen all law schools. Um, or it might know, you know, professional LOR hyphen YLS, something like that. So that's the most common type of description that we will see. And that's when it can get a bit interesting. So when you glance at the cover page, you might see that the letter description states for Williams College Law School or for Middlebury Law School. And you wonder, hmm, perhaps this applicant would have preferred to attend a school that's not Harvard. Yeah, that definitely happens once in a while. And it's a little sus, as the kids say these days. Um, Mostly, though, this is kind of not that important. So don't be overly fixated on your uh, letter of rec descriptions. Just be aware that your recommender will see it and the schools will see it. So you don't want to make it something awful. Miriam, you noted earlier that the CAS report will show whether the candidate previously applied to your school. And if so, when? I'm curious, what do you do when you see that someone is a reapplicant? Do you look back at previous files? Always, sometimes, never? What do you do, Christina? Um, sometimes, but not always. I mean, who has the time, really, depending on where we are in the cycle? It's usually when something seems eerily familiar, or I see that I was a previous reviewer on the old file and nothing had changed with regards to their standardized test score 
or their GPA. They just haven't done anything. Uh, there's no updated date. Um, only then will I sometimes do a little bit of digging if I have the time. I'm going to give the classic lawyer answer of it depends. So my general practice is I read the current application carefully. I try to decide on my score for that file first so that it's a you know, an untainted, clean, fresh score based on the current application. And then sometimes it's just so clear cut about what the score is and what should happen that it doesn't seem necessary to go back and review the prior application. Sometimes I actually remember the prior application really well, so there's no need to go back. But a pretty substantial percentage of the time, I do go back and look at the old application for, for a couple of reasons. I like to see what's changed, which can be interesting information on its own. And also sometimes I do like to check the score that I gave in the previous cycle if I don't remember, which can help affirm the score that I just gave. I'll sort of say, well, this is what's changed. It's clearly stronger in these ways. It makes sense that the score I gave is a little bit higher or you know, something along those lines will be my thought process. So it can be affirming of my own decision-making, a check on myself to go back and look at the old file. So this is super interesting to me because our file processing team, Cindy, who I mentioned earlier, and Patty, automatically attach any previous files from the past three cycles to the reapplicant's current files so we can read all previous files from the last few years. And I usually always read them. So is there anything in particular that you focus on when you're looking at that prior file, Christy? The essays. So if you're reapplying, I fully expect that you're submitting a new personal statement and think of it as another opportunity to tell us more about yourself. You're going to read the old one and we're going to read the new one. And if it's the same personal statement or just about the same, I always wonder why the applicant chose to spend a whole nother cycle reapplying to law school, but couldn't take the time to put together a new two page personal I mean, I'm statement. I'm going to push back on you. Okay. So what if they spent that time studying for the LSAT and they like got their score up by like 12 points and their first personal statement was awesome. So maybe that's why they spend another So write a second year awesome personal statement. I don't know. It's hard We're, to write a really good one one time, <laughs> let alone twice. So would it change your opinion? Hard. Would it change your opinion if in the in the instructions we say that if you're a reapplicant, yes. we expect you to do a new personal statement? Yes. And I guess knowing that your practice is to always read it and if you're very transparent about it, but I do. I have there's a, a Yiddish word that says rahmanas. It means like pity, but it kind of has a nicer vibe to it than pity. I have just sympathy for these applicants having to rewrite this personal statement. I think tweak it, edit it, maybe make some changes. But if you were really happy with it and you're in the same job, whatever it might be to have to restart from scratch, if you're take, retaking the LSAT, if maybe, I don't know. I, I don't think, I think for many people it's the right choice, but I don't think it's reflexively the right choice for every applicant in every situation. For many applicants in many situations, but not everyone every time. Yes. Christina, do you expect a whole new personal statement when you read a reapplicant file? I expect an update, some sort of acknowledgement that they're a reapplicant. I mean, after a whole year, in most instances with an unfavorable result in a previous cycle, I hope they would have done some introspection about what didn't work. Okay, what about addenda? So if you had a sort of addendum that said, this is the reason why you know, I had one semester of much lower grades in college. I'm assuming we all agree it's okay to kind of leave that one as it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I think it's worth your time to review any addenda you submitted previously and just, you know, see if you can improve them or clarify anything, obviously update, especially if it's character and fitness related. But I don't think twice if someone submits the same addendum word for word. Zooming out, are there any components of a file that you find applicants overlook? In other words, what is a component that's really crucial to your review process, but is often undervalued by applicants? 
In terms of what I'm reading, for me, it's really the application form. I find that applicants miss the opportunity to clarify information for the reader on the form. So for example, we have an employment section that asks applicants to list all employment since college began. Among other things, we ask for an end date and reason for leaving. But applicants often leave the reason for leaving portion blank. And that's fine for many, I suppose. But Sometimes you have questions about why an applicant stayed in a full-time role for just a very short period of time. If the applicant had completed the reason for leaving section, my concerns might be alleviated. But if it's blank, I'm kind of left to wonder, was it a performance issue? (laughs) Boredom? Lack of commitment? Mm -hmm. I don't know. They just should have said that they were leaving for a new opportunity on the West Coast in that reason for leaving section. Yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious. If a school asks for something, it's because we want it and you should not leave it blank. And so one big thing on the Yale Law School application that often gets overlooked or done improperly is our college and post-college activities sections. So that's basically a YLS-specific version of a resume, but it's formatted in a way that we find very helpful for our review. Many applicants do an absolutely awesome job on this section, but some don't do an awesome job. They either fail to answer parts of the question or their answers are so brief that they're unhelpful, Or conversely, they are so long that any helpful information just gets buried. What about you, Christina? What are your applicants overlooking? I'm so there with the two of you. If we're asking for it, please provide it. Consider optional application form questions as optional but not, especially since most of the questions are yes, no, or drop-down options, which takes so little time to complete. It's really hard for us to conduct a holistic file review if you don't provide context. If you leave too much blank and have high credentials, I get this feeling you're just not into us. And by us, I mean at any school I've worked at, we're your safety school. All right, so bringing us back to process. So at this point, we have a file that's been submitted, it's been completed or comped in admissions lingo by the file processing team, and it's been reviewed by one or more readers. So now it's time to start making some decisions. So, Christina, what processes have your teams at the various schools you've worked at used to make these decisions on files? All files that are admitted to UCI Law are reviewed by both my director or I and the full admissions committee. Most of these files are discussed at length by the admissions committee before coming to a decision, while others, though, are considered on a unanimous consent basis. When the admissions committee reviews files, they can see all the previous recommendations, but the members also do a review themselves. Files that first reviewers recommend as waitlist or deny are also reviewed by myself. We will either affirm or override the first reviewer. If we believe that the application should go for admission, we will move it to committee. All right, Christy, I know that the HLS team makes decisions and committees. And so what exactly does that involve? So it means physically sitting together in a room or during the pandemic, virtually in a Zoom room, and talking about files one by one, considering each file on its own and in the context of the pool as a whole. After an applicant is interviewed and reviewed by the faculty committee, the staff committee spends about a week locked away in our conference room with a big pile of snacks from Trader Joe's. Each file is presented by the interviewer and discussed for a set period of time. And we're very strict on the period of time each file is discussed. We make decisions by consensus, so everyone on the committee has to agree on the outcome. You might be more or less happy with the outcome, but everyone has to get to a consensus on the outcome. For applicants that aren't interviewed, They go to staff discussions in a committee-based setting as well. Picture us, yes, 
sitting in a room for large chunks of time, reviewing files one by one and discussing their path forward. Is it waitlist, deny, or continue to hold while we see how everything shakes out in the cycle? We typically start those committee discussions in December once we have a better sense of the pool, but we stick to 90-minute chunks for those deny committee, waitlist committee, and hold committee discussions. All right. So now it's my turn to open the uh, black box of ILS decision-making. So after that first read, one of two things can happen. Uh, It can either go to deny or it can go off to faculty review. And again, I mentioned before this intermediate discuss process, but the ultimate outcome, even after that discuss, is always going to be deny or off to faculty review. Once a file is selected for faculty file review, a handful are sent off to review by a single faculty member, our faculty chair. These are generally extremely strong applications that we think should just go directly off to a single faculty member. If that person agrees that they should be admitted, they're then admitted. Um, The vast, vast majority of files selected for further faculty review are read by three faculty members. They're reading totally independently from each other. Some of them do still read on paper, so we do still have a few paper files floating around. Most of them have switched to reading electronically via Slate. They have their own separate uh, faculty interface that we use, uh, that we created for them in Slate. So they don't know the other two faculty members who are reading. They don't discuss with anyone. And each faculty member reads usually between 30 and 50 files, although that number is variable depending on the time of year. And they score them a two, a three, or a four. That is a strict curve, and we do enforce it uh, with the faculty. So applicants are really being compared only to the other applicants in the same faculty batch. Those with the lowest total scores are rejected, the highest scores are admitted, and then what the most common outcome for those in the middle um, are waitlisted. We do go back and review those um, middle files and admit some of them um, throughout the cycle, uh, and that's how we make our admissions decisions. All right, let's say the process is coming to a close and a decision has been reached on a file. How do you release decisions? Do you pick specific days in advance? Do you aim to do big batches of decisions? At HLS, we do big batches, and uh, you can find our timeline online on our blog. At all four schools I've worked, we sent or send out offers of admission on a rolling weekly basis. Denies and wait lists tend to go out a bit more sporadically, maybe biweekly or once a month. So we admit people on a rolling basis at YLS, generally fairly soon after the decision has been made to admit, but we do that in chunks. So it's not like we make a single decision and do it. We kind of cluster those so I can make a batch of calls at the same time. For rejections, we generally pick a few dates at the beginning of the cycle where we plan to release rejections, and we generally stick quite close to those dates um, as long as other work doesn't intervene. We don't announce them because in past years, those dates have fluctuated or We've decided to consolidate two of them, so we don't want to announce something and then have to move away from it mid-cycle. And we do one round of waitlisting at the very end after all of our admitting is complete. And this usually happens in very late March or early April. And that's something that we're very consistent about from year to year. All right. We thought we would close out with a few insights on the application process that are particular to our schools. So, Christy, I'm going to ask you about interviewing candidates on Zoom. And I'm actually curious about this because we are piloting an interview program this year. So now I'm very focused on how interviews work, much more so than I ever have been in the past. So how do you decide who gets an interview? 
So at HLS, it's actually quite labor intensive. So after first and second reads are complete, some number of files have been elevated for consideration for interview. So I was describing how the second reader kind of sets the file on its path. So some number are in the interview pool. Um, That's one of the bins. It's called the interview pool. My teammate Courtney and I go through the interview pool each Thursday and we're sending out interview invites for the following week. So we have a set number of interviews that we're aiming for already based on where we are in the cycle and as well as just the interviewer's schedules and life and what the coming week looks like. So once we determine how many slots we have that week, Courtney and I go through the interview pool and we pull our top candidates at that moment in time for those interview slots. We consider a whole range of factors in making those determinations and all else equal. We pick the candidates who've been in the interview pool the longest. So typically those who submitted earlier. Over time, we will determine that there's some in the interview pool who should be considered for a wait list or a deny decision rather than interview consideration. So maybe week after week, every Thursday, Courtney and I look at Sally's file and we're like, you know, it's just not happening for Sally. She's been languishing here in the interview pool. We will move the Sally's and those other files out of the interview pool and move them to consideration for upcoming deny committees or hold committees. For Miriam, the uh, the YLS faculty review process has been much discussed and dissected by applicants. What do you wish? I'll just keep it really general. What do you wish applicants knew about the faculty review process at Yale? So less angst would be good. So I think what applicants forget is that you can have any outcome if you go to faculty review. You can be admitted, you can be denied, and you can be waitlisted. People assume that once you go to faculty review, you can only be admitted or waitlisted, and that just isn't correct. They also make all kinds of assumptions, and this makes me crazy, about what the timing of their decisions means as to how they move through the process. We work extremely hard, and it's part of the reason why it's a little opaque, to make sure that you don't know how you move through the process. So, Miriam, for for Yale, what do you see as the value of faculty review? So I'm going to say shout out to Craig. So he calls it the special sauce. And I think he's right. I'm inclined to agree. It's a way to get so many different perspectives into our process, and it really helps us choose between the many, many excellent applications that we receive in a nuanced way. We have more amazing people than we could ever possibly admit, and letting the faculty weigh in on the many variations of excellence that they see in the applicant pool, and because they have so many different opinions on what that means, it really lets us have um, an amazing amount of um, different kinds of students in our class. Christina, is there a unique aspect of the UC Irvine process that you'd like to highlight here? That's a great question, Christy. So UCI Law is the smallest and youngest of the five University of California law schools. Yesterday was the first day of our 14th fall semester. That's amazing. Uh, We actually are very interested in knowing an, uh, an applicant's response to the why UCI Law question, and we ask it a few times. It's a required essay within the initial application, and then we ask it again when we review uh, uh, applications or letters of continued interest or things submitted by waitlist candidates. And from time to time, we may interview waitlist candidates and we'll ask them that question too. Thanks so much for joining us, Christina. What final thoughts or words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? In terms of what we are talking about today, Keep in mind that the process is online, but that doesn't mean instantaneous. So apply early, but be methodical and practical. Take the time to craft your responses. Also, files submitted at a similar time might not reach a decision at the same time. 
Admission staff are human. We appreciate an applicant's patience and understanding during a very stressful process. I second that. All right, Christina, it has been such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. You are a total role model uh, for both myself and for Christy as we sort of navigate the very beginnings of our career in law school admissions when you have so many years of experience. And it's so helpful uh, to us and also I'm sure to our listeners to hear your take on the review process as they begin their own process as law school applicants. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. We hope this episode proved helpful or at least gave you some uh, playlist recommendations. (laughs) (laughs) Our next episode is coming in two weeks. Until then, good luck crafting your applications. Bye, everyone. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ryan McAvoy from the Yale Broadcast Studio.